Hello, hello, Leah Pika here. Today's guest is best known for getting customers and presentation audiences totally hooked. Stay tuned to find out who's creating a buzz on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 47. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics, visualizations, and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hello, hello. Welcome to the 47th episode of the Present Beyond Measure Show. We are back to school at the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights and ideas. So summer's coming to a close and millions of parents are breathing a collective sigh of relief that school is back in session. Unless you homeschool, and that's totally cool too. So if you're in the Denver area in a few weeks, come meet me at the Nonprofit Innovation and Optimization Summit. I'll be delivering my signature PICA protocol prescription keynote with a testing twist. So you don't want to miss that. So link to registration is on the show notes page for this episode at leahpika.com slash 047. And before we dive in, I just want to share my undying gratitude for the first launch of my data presentation and storytelling bootcamp online course bundle. Oh my gosh, the response and the feedback have been amazing. And I'm just so grateful that now any practitioner from around the world can access this incredible toolbox that took me 10 years of self-study and a lot of struggle to build. So while the awesome August promo price is gone for now, you can actually still access the full set of courses for a 10% discount. I'm not exactly sure when I'm going to run the bundle promo again. So if you're even remotely considering getting the training that thousands of practitioners use in their work every day to tell compelling data stories, in the words of Shia LaBeouf, just do it. So you can learn more about that bundle and register at leahpika.com slash bootcamp. And you can always check out my full catalog of courses at leahpika.com slash academy. The Inspiring Insights Academy is going to be your new destination for all of your data presentation and storytelling needs. So I can't wait to see you in class. Now, I've been trying to get today's guest on the show for years. I am so thrilled because from the very first keynote session I watched of his, I saw it was expertly designed to engage the audience and engagement is this guy's zone of genius. I can't wait to share the amazing tips that he had for us today. All right, let's hit it. Hello, hello. So today's guest famously writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, 
technology, and business. The MIT Technology Review dubbed him the prophet of habit-forming technology. He's an active investor in habit-forming technologies such as Eventbrite and Refresh.io. And in addition to his blog at nearandfar.com, his writing's been featured in the Harvard Business Review, TechCrunch, and Psychology Today. And he is the author of the best-selling book, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Nir Eyal. Welcome. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's really my pleasure. Um, I had my sights set on you for about the last two years, I would say, because wow. <laughs> we, bo we both spoke at Conversion Excel Live in 2016, I think it was, but we didn't actually meet, but I will never forget the keynote that you gave because I was still kind of on the cusp of building my pro speaking career. And I just remember thinking how memorable certain parts of that were and how polished and powerful it came across. So we, uh, intersected again, <laughs> this time in the Netherlands at Conversion Hotel. Right. Yeah. And I got to see you again, but this time we finally got to meet. And what was so interesting uh, was that in, in your presentation, you actually talked about a psychological trigger that you incorporated into your talk, which we'll get to in just a second. Um, but I thought it would be such a fascinating um, spin for this show. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for the kind words. It's very, very nice of you to say. And yeah, I'm, 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 we, I love talking shop about this stuff. So this should be an interesting conversation. <laughs> Great. So everyone loves a good origin story. How did you end up in the field of understanding what makes people's habits and what makes addictive habits? And how did you get to start speaking about it? Yeah, so I think my fascination began in my childhood, if I'm completely honest. Uh, so I was clinically obese at one point in my life wow. up until, uh, you know, maybe shortly past puberty uh, in high school is when I kind of started losing weight and taking care of my body. But until then, I remember being in this constant struggle with my weight and food, and it felt like these external factors were controlling me. I didn't feel in control of my own decisions in my own life. And so that's where mm. I think I really became fascinated by how a product can so profoundly change your behaviors and change your decisions. Uh, and so that's why I always had a fascination around, you know, even from a young kid, I remember watching shows um, that were, you know, were geared towards helping kids make better decisions or helping kids uh, see through the manipulative nature of advertising. And I always thought that was really wow. interesting about how products could change behavior. Uh, and so, you know, fast forward to, um, let's see, this was 2008. Eight, I started a, a tech company in the gaming and advertising space, and I had this front row seat. This was 2008 was the year, if you'll recall, that the Apple iPhone was launched. Uh, the App Store, the Apple App Store was launched. Uh, Facebook was still pretty much a, a nascent platform at that point. Oh, wow. And we launched this company that um, uh, promoted uh, advertising within apps. And back then apps didn't mean iPhone apps. It meant Facebook apps. That was kind of the only apps around. This was before the Apple app store. And so, uh, I had this, this, this front row seat watching different apps kind of come and go. And I didn't really understand why some, uh, attracted millions of users and others kind of faded away. 
And I really want to dive into the psychology behind how some of the world's most habit-forming products are designed to be so. So, you know, what makes Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat why are these products so habit-forming? And so I read everything I could on the topic, and I didn't really see a book that answered the question in a way that I was satisfied with, and so I decided to write that book. So I did a lot of research. I spent a lot of time in the, in the Stanford Library talking to people who helped build these products, talking mm. to researchers and psychologists, and uh, that became a blog that I, I wrote on uh, called Near and Far. I still write there at nearandfar.com. And then one day, my one of my former professors from Stanford Business School reached out and said, hey, I really like your stuff. It's very uh, hand in glove with the stuff that I teach in my marketing class. What if we did a class together? Mm-hmm. And so he kind of gave me carte blanche to uh, to to help make this this class. And he, uh, you know, he was heavily involved. And then that class, I taught that class with him. And then that class turned into another class that I taught with a different person uh, mm-hmm. at the Stanford Design School, where I taught for many years. And so and then that also became my book, Hooked, uh, How to Build Habit Forming Products uh, that that, you know, amalgamated everything I'd learned into what I hope is a very practical way for people who are designing the kind of products to help people, you know, to help them live better lives, to help them form healthy habits. Right. The idea is not to build frivolities, right, to Facebook and YouTube. We know these techniques and they have for quite some time. My idea was how can we use the same psychology that makes Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and YouTube so sticky? How can we use that same psychology for good to make all sorts of products that can help people build healthy habits, uh, make them, you know, design them to be better? Well, I really love the mission that you have to really take a look at the mechanics behind what makes these so addictive, but habit forming uh, habits not, sorry not that's addiction Remember, not an addictive addiction, <laughs> an addiction ha- is by definition something that harms the user oh, and so got actually it. my publisher wanted me to title the book how to build addictive products and i absolutely refused oh, because addiction is very different an addiction is a pathology uh, whereas okay. a habit is simply a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. And we have, of course, many good habits. There's no such thing as a good addiction. Addictions, by <laughs> definition, harm people. That Thank you for that distinction. I've actually been using them pretty interchangeably in my mind. And, you know, when people describe something they love, they use that word. And, you know, I'll definitely be more mindful of that going <laughs> forward. <laughs> but I also really appreciate the mission that you have in terms of how to create products or services that actually help people, but also leverage those mechanics as well. So as many people who need that product or service can get it right. Absolutely. Yeah. So I really appreciate that. And, um, you know, what are some of the triggers that you talk about in, in your book? And I, what I saw in terms of your, I think it was called the hook framework. Um, I saw some commonalities to some points I read in a book called Atomic Habits by mm-hmm. James Clear. Yeah, and, he, he mentions um, me a few times in that book. Yes. A, friend, yeah. <laughs> I saw that. I, that was great to see. Um, so it, it's, I find the psychology behind what forms great habits and attraction to a product or service so fascinating. So I'd love if you could speak to that a bit. Yeah, sure. So the you know the basic psychology of a habit is that there are these three parts uh, of a what I call a trigger, an action, a reward. Now you know there's been a lot of books and a lot of research for years and years, decades and decades, well before me or James Clear or Charles Duhigg or you know whoever the the author du jour about habits uh, writes about. Um, but you know the definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. It's about half of what you do every single day. And what we see is is uh, common among all habits is that they are contextually 
visually cued. So there's some kind of trigger to prompt us to action. Now, the differentiate, I think what, what I add to the conversation uh, is that I differentiate between what's called an external trigger and an internal trigger. Okay. That an external trigger is something in our environment, a ping, a ding, a ring, something that mm. prompts you to action with some kind of information. So it could be, you know, a notification on your phone. It could be a vending machine. It could be a television. It could be anything that prompts you to action in your environment. And that's kind of how people generally think of habits. But there are also, I think what's even more important is what's called an internal trigger. And an internal trigger comes from an, something inside us, right? Because all human behavior, all human behavior is motivated out of the desire to escape discomfort. <laughs> yes. Now that is something most people don't realize. You know, most people subscribe to this Freudian notion, what he called the pleasure principle, which says that we pursue pleasure and avoid pain. And that's not exactly right. That in fact, everything we do is about the escape of discomfort. <clears throat> wow. Excuse me, all motivation. It's pain all the way down. It's mm -hmm. called the homeostatic response. Sorry. <clears throat> so um, when you think about, you know, when you are cold, that discomfort of being cold makes you put on a coat. When you're hungry, you feel hunger pangs and you eat. Uh, and so those, those are physiological responses. We see the exact same uh, phenomenon occur for psychological discomfort. When we're feeling lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we are um, uh, bored, we might turn on the television or read the paper or check sports scores or check Reddit, whatever the case might be. Right. So everything we do is spurred by the desire to escape discomfort. So when we build a habit-forming product or create any kind of behavioral design, right, whatever it is we want our, our consumer, our listener, our audience, whatever, to do something – we always have to couch it in the language of alleviating their discomfort. We have to understand mm. what their internal triggers are. And, you know, as, as this show centers around presentation and creating influence and inspiring action, my wheels are turning right now in terms of what if we also looked at presentations, whether it's a conference room board meeting or an industry conference, how, those could serve or be considered a product or service that you want to create some of these same triggers around. And I can see pain avoidance um, or discomfort avoidance being a big part of that, right? Part of what we're doing when we're presenting information is we're articulating a problem that our audience might have, and we're expressing that we might have a solution around it. Absolutely. It's it's called the Wiffy, right? What's in it for you? Ah, uh, I like that. To, yeah, that was Joey. Oh, I can't remember his last name. He wrote a book about this and I I'm, I don't remember his last name. First name's Joey. It's a, a, we'll find a, it. Yeah, you'll find it. <laughs> but he talked about this Wiffy of what's in it for you. Uh, and this is a very common mistake we see when, when speakers get on stage and they talk about, here's my pedigree and here's my background and here's what I've done and here's this and here's that. Me, me, me. Nobody gives a shit. <laughs> <laughs> what they care about is what problem are you solving for me? Uh, I see this so much with academics. God bless these academics who are terrible public speakers because if it weren't for them, I wouldn't have a career. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, they do so much fascinating research and they can't get it outside the right. ivory tower because they can't communicate why this matters for their audience. Uh, it's all about why it was so interesting for them. Uh, but if right. it doesn't, if it doesn't, you know, resonate with the audience in terms of solving a pain point, if you can't identify their internal trigger, they're not going to care. So in the conversion hotel talk that I saw, I saw one really effective trigger that was fun for everyone. But in the context of what you're talking about now, how is it that you are able to speak when you're speaking to audiences? What's the pain point that you're helping people alleviate the discomfort around? 
Well, right now I have these two primary talks, uh, and one is based on my first book, and the second is based on my next book. Uh, so the the first book, what's been keeping me busy, and what I talked about when we met, uh, is about how to build habit forming products. So the 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 problem, the what's in it for you, is isn't it remarkable that we spend so much money acquiring customers mm. and then we just lose them, right? They <laughs> right. can't keep them engaged. We all know that it's way cheaper to keep a customer than to buy, find a new one. So right. wouldn't it be great if instead of spending all that money on marketing and sending people spammy messages that they hate, what if you could get people back to your product or service on their own because they wanted to, not because they felt like they had to use your product, but because they genuinely wanted to use your product. So what if we could learn from the same psychology that makes gaming so sticky and Facebook and Instagram mm. and WhatsApp, why don't we use the same psychology to build healthy habits using the same techniques? That's the what's in it for you for Hooked. Now with my next book, my next book that's coming out September 2019 is called Indistractable. And Indistractable <laughs> is, is uh, the subtitle is How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And the idea here is that you know many of us feel like we are constantly uh, pulled from one thing to another. We're constantly distracted and we can't do what we say we're going to do. Right. And it answers this, this question that I struggled with of, Look, I know what to do, right? I've read plenty of self-help books. I know that uh, chocolate cake is not as healthy as eating a healthy salad. I know I should exercise. I know when I sit down at my desk, I should work on that hard project instead of you know, checking the news or sports scores or emails or Slack channels. I should just get to work on what's really important. But why don't I do it? <laughs> and the reason is because we live in this age of distraction uh, that there is so much coming at us. Now, what I learned from all that, I don't want to give away too much, but what I yeah. learned from all that uh, is that I went on this journey to, to doing what all the self-help books uh, told me to do, which is get rid of the technology, right? The technology is the problem. The distraction is right. the problem. And it turns out the distraction is never the problem. Mm. The real problem is what's going on inside us. Back to those internal triggers. What I discovered was, you know, I did all these techniques. I did a digital detox. I did the <laughs> Sabbath. I did digital minimalism. And it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work wow. was back to my experience of being obese, you know, I would go on these fad diets of, okay, 30 days, no carbs, 30 days, no fat, 30 days, no junk food. Right. Well, guess what happened on day 31? Right. Back. Ah, <laughs> I ate everything, right? Because I bounced back. And the reason I bounced back yeah. is because I hadn't dealt with what was really going on inside of me. Mm. So let me tell you, if the reason that you're using your cell phone when you're around your kids, as I did, that's kind of how I opened the book is this experience that I had when I realized one day, oh my God, you know, I wrote the book hooked and now I'm hooked and I'm with my daughter and yet now I'm on my phone as opposed to being fully present with someone I love. I got news for you. And for me, it wasn't the phone. It was that I was looking for escape. Right. And all distraction is this desire to escape discomfort uh, back to those internal triggers. So if you don't understand what those internal triggers are yourself, uh, then it's going to be very hard to manage distraction. However, if you understand and you can master your internal triggers, nothing can distract you. It doesn't matter how powerful wow. their algorithms are. You will be indistractable. That's so incredible. And first of all, does it make you crazy when you see people get on their phones while you're speaking? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, funny enough, I love it. Because they're it. hopefully they're tweeting <laughs> about well, you. That, no, that's a good point, but that's actually not why. The reason is, is because as a speaker, you know, when you've done this for a while, your talk becomes a little bit of a, of a script, right? Yes. You're kind of an actor on a stage and you're just, you know, reciting your lines. And you don't know how you did until afterwards. And mm. even then it's kind of shaky. The thing that cell phones provide is instantaneous feedback. 
So I can tell the energy of the room by looking around and seeing how many glowing faces I see. If I, <laughs> if I see a lot of glowing faces, it means I'm boring. I need to step up the energy. I need to you know, engage people more. I need to make more eye contact. I need to get down into the crowd to mm. engage people because that means I'm boring. And frankly, look, if I'm listening to somebody else's talk and it's boring, I'm going to use my cell phone because they haven't done a good job of keeping me engaged. Near, that's one of the most effective like in-flight tools that I've gotten from any guest on this show that I've never awesome. thought about. Value added. <laughs> <laughs> Look to the glowing faces to gauge uh, how you're doing. And, you know, for me, I had always, I had looked at that as a reflection of like, oh gosh, what am I doing wrong? But I never thought to be conscious, like, okay, where am I in the talk right now? And what can yeah. I evaluate about that? Absolutely. Now it's hard to, I, it's hard to make changes on the fly. I mean, there's only so much you can do. You <laughs> of course. Can, you can add energy, you can get into the crowd. There's some things you can do, but yeah, yeah it's, you know, if you consistently see a lot of people looking at their phones, that's not a good sign. Something's not going right. <laughs> That's incredible advice. And the other uh, thing that really jumped out at me when you were talking about um, two books, what's funny is that you talked about the way not to go about it is to say, walk up on stage and go, I'm a customer retention expert. <laughs> this is what I do. But yeah. instead, you started with a hard hitting question that was like, isn't it remarkable that we spend so much money and effort acquiring customers and not retaining them? And for me, that jumped out as uh, one of my favorite tools right now that I use from TED, which is called the through line. Mm. And it's basically one sentence that summarizes your entire talk. And it's a connective theme that all ideas eventually tie back to. And what I think is so powerful is that you made that a question around a pain point people try to avoid. Oftentimes I've done statements about like overarching themes, but I thought that was really powerful. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I, I found that before, uh, when I first started talking, I would try and pack in so much into a talk <laughs> and that, that's, a, that's a novice mistake, right? Yeah. It's to try and, you know, barf out as much information as you can. Uh, and I still am guilty of this to some extent, especially if I, if I don't have much time on stage, I tend to talk very fast as you can probably tell by now. Uh, <laughs> and that's always a mistake. I mean, if there's one piece of feedback that I consistently struggle with is that I need to slow, slow down, which down. means I also need to edit away a lot of the things I, I want to say yeah. for the sake of of, uh, you know, giving people just one through line, one hard hitting idea to take away. Exactly. I love that. So, okay. During your conversion hotel talk, you, you did this, such a fun thing. You baited the audience by asking them about a powerful psychological trigger and you actually made them wait for it. You like leaned forward yeah. and you were like, can you guess what it is? And everyone yeah. leaned forward. So can you describe? <laughs> sure. So so the idea uh, I was trying to impart was this idea around variable rewards. And variable rewards is this very old concept that comes from operating conditioning. Uh, the psychologist by the name of B.F. Skinner back in the 1940s and 50s, mm -hmm. uh, he took pigeons and he put them in, in a little box and he gave the pigeons this little disc to peck at. And every time they pecked at the disc, they would get a little reward, a little food pellet. Mm -hmm. And at first he could train these pigeons to peck at the disc as long as the pigeons were hungry. 
But then he ran out of these food pellets. He literally <laughs> right. didn't have enough of them. And so he started to give them uh, to the pigeons just you know, intermittently. So one time the pigeon would get the, get the disc. I'm sorry. One time the pigeon would get the food pellet. Uh, the next time they wouldn't. And so what he found was that when he gave them on a variable schedule of reinforcement is that the rate of response, the number of times that these pigeons pecked at the disc increased when there was a mm. variable reward as opposed to a, a uh, fixed schedule of reinforcement. And so I wanted to demonstrate to folks how to create desire, how to create this I, this uh, th- this this itch that people often uh, feel uh, when they are given a variable reward. And the way I did this was to ask this question: Would you like to know how to manufacture desire? <laughs> Who here is curious how to manufacture desire? And then I went silent. And it felt in the room, and it always does, it feels like I'm silent for like five minutes. A year. It's, it's 10 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> it literally is counting to 10. But everybody's sitting there staring at you. What's he going to say next? What's going to happen? Why isn't he talking? Did he forget his lines? What's the goddamn answer? <laughs> and it turns out that that is the answer, that I'm doing it to the crowd. The crowd is now being, you know, has received a variable re- reward. There's uncertainty. Right. There's mystery. And that long pause when I changed my cadence, when I took a break, when I asked a question, baited them to then, you know, sit on the edge of their seats and, and, and ask themselves, what's next? What's the answer? What's going to happen? I thought that was so clever because the trigger was the exact thing that you were doing. And I think that that's a really powerful storytelling technique when you're trying to maintain people's attention rather than just talking ad nauseum for 40 minutes. You know, after I saw that talk, I was inspired to look at mine and say, where can I create a little bit more anticipation in here? And, you know, I I got creative and I was like, what is the most important uh, visualization tool I could possibly give you right now? You really mm. want to know. And they're like, yeah, I'm like, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was pretty explicit with it. I said, OK, this is how to do it. See, I just did it to you. But yeah. you don't have to be that explicit. You can absolutely do it in a way that people don't know what you did to them, just as you did, of just taking a long pause. And people think you're being very dramatic. Yes. And yet they are holding on to every word you're saying. Right. If if you can practice and you really nail it, it can be so effective. Clearly, <laughs> it worked so well. So what are some of the more powerful elements? You know, I'm sure you see a lot of talks in your line of work. What are some of the ones that really stand out to you where you're like, oh, they're good. They're on to people's brains. Yeah. You know, the ones I like the most are the ones that overturn apple carts. I love mm. the speakers <laughs> the that say, you know, I know you think the world is this way, but actually it's completely different. That to me adds a lot of value. That's the kind of talk I like. Now, not everybody likes that kind of talk. A lot of speakers, um, you know, like to reinforce. They like to rabble rouse. They like to say, okay, we all agree around this, right? Right. You know, and, and that's a strategy. That's a tactic, right? You can, yeah. you can play off of fear. Uh, you can play off of tribalism. You can, I mean, we see this a lot in our political discourse of, you know, echo chambers that people like to go to a political rally to hear stuff they already know. They're not yeah. there to learn. They're there to bond and and uh, reinforce their insecurities that they're okay because look, everybody else around me believes what I believe. That doesn't do it for me. That's not what I admire. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a very shallow uh, shallow kind of, of, of public discourse. What I really enjoy is, you know, I'm here among a bunch of liberals and I'm gonna tell you why 
you actually don't see the world the way it is. And I'm going to show you why actually this small idea is actually correct. Or I'm in front of a bunch mm. of conservatives and here's the liberal idea that you may not expect that you actually probably agree with if you knew blah, blah, blah or whatever. But to do that is really hard to change yeah. minds, to help people see the world differently is really, really tough. Uh, yeah. Very hard. Right. Talk about habits. You know, our most prevalent habits are the ones in our heads, not the behaviors. It's not the brushing our teeth or flossing our or flossing our teeth every night. It's the habits of belief. I am what I am and you can't change me. I believe what I believe and you can't change me. That talk about habits. Right. Yeah. We don't look for scientific evidence every day to see if we're right. We just you know, we do it with little or no conscious thought. We think we like what we like and believe what we believe because that's the truth and that's who we are. And of course, scientifically, that's not at all true. <laughs> our, our beliefs are very much shaped by others in our environment. We believe what others believe. Uh, and so anytime that, you know, speaker for me can, can, can make me see the world differently, that's that I love. I and mean, that's why I do what I do. That's what yeah. inspires me. And if I can give that to an audience, then uh, I find that to be very satisfying. I love that so much. And you're right. It is really challenging if you know you're going into the lion's den <laughs> with a controversial message. For me, I've always liked to at least try to inspire the minds that are listening or change the minds that are open. Um, and this reminds me of the value systems that Mark Manson talks about in his book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Beep, <laughs> um, where he talks about what you said. It's the habits are more the belief systems where we're measuring the success of something in our lives based on an unconscious program that we have no ideas even running. Like, for example, in presentations, bullet points are kind of like an unconscious program. It's all we know how to learn when we're putting information on a slide and we read from them verbatim. It's There's no other habit that said, no, this is a better way. So teaching people that there is an alternative strategy is challenging <laughs> because, yeah. because at first they're like, oh, I get it. I know why now other presentations are so bad. But then they're like, oh, and now I have to change my own habits. <laughs> right. It's very, it's, it's, yeah. And you know, a lot of it is we don't realize how influenced we are by the human desire to escape discomfort by, uh, our, you know, humans are like water. We take the path of least resistance. Yeah. You know, one of the, a very common error to, uh, that I see all the time is people, you know, novice speakers reading from slides where they have this wall of words and they say they do it because they want to inform their audience. But the real reason is because they don't want to memorize their speech and they want to read the text off their slides. Well, that's a lack of preparation, right? Like, I know it's hard. The worst part about my job is how I have to run through a new presentation again and again and again. It's the part I like least about what I do for a living. <laughs> but that's what it takes. Yeah. I think it takes memorizing your speech so that, it, hey, if, you're, if your slides go dark and they can't figure out how to get them back up, which has happened right. to me on more than one occasion. I can still deliver that talk because it's all up here right. and everything that you see on the slides is just, you know, reinforcing with an emotional picture. But, you know, there's very, very little text on my slides. But then, you know, most people, that's not at all what they do because they feel like, well, if I don't have this, the, the text on my slides, what am I going to say? Right, <laughs> right, exactly. But that's for your benefit, not for your audiences. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think once you integrate it into your system to a degree where it just flows with you and it flows out of you, that's where you want to get with your material. You don't want to leverage it as a script <laughs> that everyone right. is reading. Well, that's that's where I think it's the most fun is that when it is so, you know, level one is the person who reads off the slides. 
Uh, level two is the person who's memorized the slides, but you can tell that they've memorized them. Right. <laughs> level three is the person who's memorized what they're going to say and can have this meta awareness where the words will come out and they can focus on how they come out. Mm. Right. They can focus on landing the punchline. They can focus on the guy in the first row who's on his phone that that you're going to make look up from their device because now you're going to be super entertaining to, for right, them. Right. But you can only do that after you're confident in what you're going to say. I agree with you. It's like you achieve a place of living inside of it, and that allows you to actually play with it and move beyond it if you need to, which I think yeah. is so great. But it takes a lot of memorization. I wish I yeah. wish someone could teach me the secret of how to memorize lines faster because I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish there was a secret technique. The, the TED method, which I did uh, for a 15-minute poem that I had no slides for, it would wow. only be up here. I, I did their method where I uh, repeated it, sections of it again and again until I wasn't even, th until I could multitask while saying it. And then I there stitched it together. And within how many a, hours did it take you to, to memorize a 15 minute talk? Um, well, that day was the most memorization. It probably took about five hours, but before okay. that, maybe three hours. But I have a pretty good, I have a pretty good memory for these kinds of things, like a, as a, a singer. So still, that, that's <laughs> that. I mean, the pro, it's not fun. No, no. <laughs> I, I was panic mode for most it's of it. Listen to it. It's not fun to memorize it, right? For fifteen minutes, yeah. you spent hours and hours doing. I, I hear you. It, it is not a fast process. <laughs> and you're in panic mode for most of that because the right. minute you hit a, a flub, you're like, "Oh, that's going to take me down." Oh, and it, but I then could, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at some point, it all gels. And for me, it gelled actually at the live reading. <laughs> so, oh, is that right? oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. Sometimes you see speakers who just go on stage and can just I know. talk. Uh, and the, the, the thing is, I used to be in awe of those folks. And I think that there are people who can actually get on stage and, and truly be interesting, just, you know, off the cuff. Yeah. But there's a lot more people who think that they're interesting who are awful <laughs> on stage because they haven't prepared. And and I right. I am I have no sympathy for that. I mean, what a waste of an audience's time when you haven't bothered to memorize yeah. what you're going to say. I agree with you. And for me, the preparation, I like to get to a point where I know I'm having the, the main ideas I want to get across are solidified in my mind because I don't want to walk off that stage going, oh, I forgot this and I forgot that. <laughs> yes, that's the worst. <laughs> I used to do that. And I mean, you can accept that because you're like, no one knows what you forgot. But at the same time, you know what you, the main things you wanted to get across. So I know a certain degree of preparation gets me to a place where I feel like I'm absolutely bringing my best self. Yeah. And, and for a Q&A, it's fine, right? Q&A, oh, that's yeah. what audience expects. They or want panel. to off the cuff. You know, they don't want to rehearse script. Right. Um, but yeah, when it is, okay, give a presentation and, you know, talk about your book, talk about your discovery, talk about your research, talk yeah. about, you know, the, the, the wifi, right? Uh, yeah. And you have it memorized. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Well, Nir, I know you didn't have a lot of time today, so I'll jump down to our final question. Imagine this very plausible scenario. You are running the JP Morgan 5K completely barefoot when you uh, suddenly trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. What were you speaking about and what would present day you say to yesterday you? Whoa, you're springing on a, a, a 
A good question. That's <laughs> so, the idea. So there's a lot that so the, <laughs> you asked me beforehand, what's my hobby? And a hobby that many people don't know about is that I like to run barefoot. That's why you said running barefoot. And I run barefoot in New York City, believe it or not, um, been there for a few years. Um, yeah, I, I read this book called Born to Run, which kind of uh, influenced me to, which I recommend. It's a great book. Cool. Okay, so let me see. So take me back. So I, I, I fall in a vortex. I'm taken back <laughs> to my very first talk. Mm -hmm. uh, what do I wish I would have known back then? Mm -hmm. And what were you talking about? What was I talking about? If you remember. I do, actually. My very first public talk was <laughs> I was running. This was back when I was a very chubby kid. I was running for vice president of student council in my seventh wow. grade class. <laughs> I, I spoke in front of uh, my entire school, my, my entire middle school. And I don't know about you, my middle school experience was horrible. I had a terrible middle school Let experience. Let us never speak of that time Who period. Who doesn't, right? Exactly. <laughs> I was a very chubby kid growing up in Orlando where there no, you know, with this weird name, Near, nobody, it was a very, yeah. And anyway, oh. actually my blog, Near and Far, was because that's what kids used to make fun of me. Oh. They said Near and Far. So, um, and I was running against the most popular prettiest cheerleader in school. And, uh, uh, and I, I won actually And I think had wow. I not, you know, it's, it's funny. Okay. I don't know if we have time for this, but I'll say it. Anyway. No, so I, I'm you can on your... <laughs> so I had prepared, uh, I had prepared a speech in the form of a rap. Yes. Tell this me there's footage of this so, somewhere. <laughs> okay. No, thank God there isn't. This was before social media. Nobody did. So, okay. So my, my brother, who's seven years older than me, I have two brothers. My middle brother um, said, hey, you know, I, I hear the, uh, the, the, the school speeches tomorrow that you're running for vice president. Hey, you know, why don't you practice your speech? And I said, really? You, know, uh, you want me? Okay, here it goes. And I did this speech, the, this rap. And he was like, no, <laughs> you are not doing that. On, that is horrible. So he said, get in the car. We are going right now to the middle school. And he took me to the stage. They had set it up because it was the day before the, the, the elections or with his talks, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he told me, get on stage and we're going to redo this right now. And, uh, he, he we rewrote the talk right then and there. And he started with basically the same principles that we've been talking about. What's in it for you? Right. Like, so wow. you're going to vote. You know, I want your, the audience uh, is the, is the student count is the uh, student body. What's in it for you if you vote for me? And uh, it was very much about that. And uh, I won. <laughs> I won the election. It's amazing. And it was a real life changer for me because I was very insecure. I was very um, didn't have many friends, uh, you know, felt very kind of secluded. And I beat the the cheerleader. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> oh, congrats, Nir. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, <laughs> that moment really, I think, changed my life, seeing the power of talking from the heart. Here's why I want to be vice president of the student council. Here's what I want to do. And not a gimmick, not a stupid rap. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I think what you're proving, which is so true through today, is I think authenticity will trump popularity. You know, as soon as you're relatable to an audience or group, you will tap into exactly how you can serve them. And I think that will always overcome an image of what people would aspire to be. Yeah, you know. couldn't have said it better. Authenticity. That's that's it. I love it. Well, <laughs> that's that might be one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs>
So unfortunately, That's the first time I've told that publicly, by the way, so. <laughs> breaking news here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to get some emails from somebody who hears this podcast and say, I remember that speech in your seventh grade class. <laughs> I, I remember I, I, um, revealed that I was on where in the world is, is Carmen San Diego. The, you were? Oh yes. <laughs> the, wow. ge- the geography. We have a lot in common in terms of seventh grade experience. <laughs> were you also on show? it? Yeah, no, I, I wasn't on it, but I oh, watched it every day. <laughs> oh, I was I was a contestant on it. No and, kidding. Uh, yeah, and I I discussed that during a talk because it's a fun fact, and someone found it, <laughs> a video wow. recording of it from like thirty years ago. It was. Oh my god, the internet never forgets. That's amazing. I know. I know what I'll be looking for after this episode. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> Need to put that in the show notes. I want to see that. Did you? How'd you do? Did you win? Uh, no, I, I nope. did not win. That's okay. I tried my best, though. Tried did you find my best. Carmen San Diego? Where was she? Uh, she was hidden in, I think, Bolivia in ah. South America. I didn't. I, I I bet too low in that lightning round of where you wager because I'm not much of a gambler, and someone just like blew past me. They they bet it all, <laughs> so it taught me about risk taking. <laughs> wow, that's a great story. I love it. <laughs> I'll send it to you. Where in the world? I remember it. Yeah. well unfortunately our time has run out Uh, i could talk so much longer Um, but please tell listeners where they can keep up with you Absolutely. Yeah. So my blog is nearandfar.com and near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So N-I-R and far.com. And my uh, my first book is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And in fall of 2019, uh, I will be publishing Indistractable, How to Choose Your Attention and Control, uh, sorry, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Well, I, I am putting that second book on my pre-order list like ASAP because it is really fascinating. We blame our sort of environment and our ADHD for being so distracted and we use it as a, as a reason why that's okay. But really looking internally at what's going on, I think is so valuable. So all of those links and his blog are going to be on the show notes page for this episode. Thank you so much for joining. And Nir, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule. I think that this offered some really interesting tools for people to use with their presentations. Oh, I'm so glad. My pleasure. This was really fun. Thank you. Oh, man, I feel like this show keeps getting better and better with the amazing wisdom that these guests are dropping. That was just, yeah. So to catch all of the links and the resources and get access to Nira's book mentioned on this episode, visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 047. I would love if you could leave me a comment or suggestion because I want to hear about the challenges you face when presenting information and really making an impact. If you like what you've heard, hop on over to iTunes to subscribe, leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews are so appreciated because they let me know that you are resonating with the material and with the guests that I'm bringing on the show. And I'll be reading out my favorite reviews on future episodes. And today's presentation inspiration is anonymous, but it is perfect to close out today's theme. Starve your distractions, feed your focus. What's my take? Well, as presenters of data and ideas, we are competing for the attention of our audience with more distractions than ever before. 
I think that Nir's book could be so valuable, not only to help us understand what makes an audience minds tick, but to help you take the focus that you need so that you are getting the best possible job done. You know, a lot of times I'll hear people complain that I don't have the time to do a presentation like this, but I would argue that our time is being taken up more and more by these distractions. And you can learn about how you present information in a way that is so compelling that the audience's distractions will fall by the wayside and their focus is completely on you and your story. That's it for today. I'm wishing you an amazing close to the summer and a brilliant start to fall. Namaste and Namaga. And that's a wrap. Great. It would be okay. like a fun what? little. <laughs> well, I mean, Good. you've got. <laughs> we'll try. It's a bit of a stretch, I will admit. Okay. <laughs>